Mormon Stories podcast depends entirely upon the voluntary contributions of you, its listeners. To keep Mormon Stories alive, please consider donating today at mormonstories.org. To make a contribution to Mormon Stories, just click on the Make a Donation button at the top right of the mormonstories.org website. Also, please help us promote Mormon Stories via dig.com and sustained.org. For all this and more, please check out mormonstories.org. And thank you for listening. In my estimation, Dr. Richard Bushman is one of the single most important figures in both 20th and 21st century Mormonism. Born and raised a member of the LDS Church, attended Harvard for both his undergraduate and graduate degrees, culminating in a Ph.D. in history, struggled with his own faith while attending Harvard, worked through these struggles to eventually become not only the world's foremost scholar on Joseph Smith in the early years of the LDS Church, but also a faithful, devout, believing member, father of six, who has served as bishop stake president, and now patriarch for the LDS Church. There isn't an anti-Mormon alive who can claim to know more than Dr. Bushman about Joseph Smith, warts and all. And yet, Brother Bushman still chooses to believe that Joseph Smith was an inspired prophet of God. In this multi-part series, we will discuss with Richard Bushman at length his experiences as a Mormon scholar and we will attempt to delve deeply into each of the toughest issues surrounding Joseph Smith and the founding of the LDS Church, including the first vision story, treasure digging, peep stones, polygamy, masonry, and all the rest. In part one of this series, Dr. Bushman discusses his early years, his career as a Mormon historian, including his interactions with both Leonard Arrington and Sunstone Dialogue magazines, and his perspectives on the role of history, thought, and candid dialogue within the modern LDS Church. Your story, today on Mormon Stories. Dr. Richard Bushman, thank you for coming on Mormon Stories podcast. I'm pleased to be here. If you don't mind, it's sort of a tradition with Mormon Stories podcast that we begin by having uh, our guests tell a bit about their story. And so if you don't mind, I'd love our listeners and, and myself to learn a bit about your, your childhood, your early years, um, and then we'll go from there. I was born in uh, Salt Lake at the uh, beginning of the Depression, and my family, like so many others, was part of the diaspora that left Utah in the 30s because the economy couldn't support the population and instead of ending up in California <coughs> like my wife's parents we ended up in Portland Oregon and I grew up there until I left high school in Portland when it was uh, one stake covered um, not only all of Portland but south all the way to Eugene and east to uh, the Dalles <coughs> so it was virtually the entire northeast northwest quadrant of the state and I think it had a great effect on my intellectual outlook 
because I never thought that Mormonism was powerful. I always thought it was weak. Hmm. It was just a little church just struggling to get a toehold. And so I did, in those years when people try to break free of something and establish their own identity, I, Mormonism wasn't strong enough to uh, become a worthy opponent for me. My parents were both uh, faithful in the church. My dad was uh, in the bishopric, and we were uh, pretty much a faithful family. But I never felt any need to rebel. Where I rebelled was when I got to Harvard as an undergraduate in 1949, and my tutor there in my sophomore year, a very distinguished scholar, uh, informed me in a gentle and kindly way that lots of people around there uh, thought of Mormonism as garbage. Hmm. And I, my first response was indignation. And it was that massive Eastern academic culture that seemed to me to be the dominant force. And if there was any rebellion in my heart, it was uh, directed against that rather than against the Latter-day Saint Church. Right. So almost defensive. Pardon? Defensive? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I didn't want them beating up on my family. I knew they were good people. And to say that they were foolish for believing such garbage uh, was very offensive. I thought it was a very coarse comment for a Harvard faculty member to make. So how'd you respond to it? I didn't fight him at the moment. I just sort of took it, soaked it up. I told the story a hundred times. I didn't realize how much the incident meant until late in life I began relating it as a <clears throat> as a characteristic event in my early maturation. So he said this during class, in, in a classroom setting? No, this was a private tutorial. Uh, uh, him and me sitting together and talking about books. So, so afterwards, how did you respond in your own private time? Personally? Well, I was enthusiastic about the church and um, the, the Harvard uh, kids there would get together every Sunday and we would talk about anything we wanted to. We were great speculators. A number of uh, really interesting people were there and since we felt absolutely no inhibitions on what we discussed I've always felt very free in Mormonism never felt like there were constraints because I've always lived in free zones of Mormon culture where we talked about anything do you mean non-Utah basically well I never didn't live in Utah so I couldn't really make a comparison, but the places where I happen to land, namely Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Portland, Oregon, uh, I had no sense of being uh, constrained to toe the line, or <clears throat> there are things we couldn't talk about. Okay. So with those students, you would have this free inquiry and discussion. Right. And what came out of that for you? Well, uh, a sense of the richness and the mysteries of the gospel. We were in some ways sophisticated, in some ways very naive. We were not putting Mormonism up against um, elaborate s 
systems of philosophy. We weren't comparing it to Spinoza or Kant or Freud, though I was taking courses where I was getting those kinds of people and sort of did a little comparison. But mainly we were like <coughs> missionaries who liked to investigate the mysteries, trying to figure out what this scripture or that scripture meant. So um, it wasn't profound. It was very much in-house Mormonism. But, uh, and it, was, it wasn't uh, skeptical. We were all believers. We just took it for granted. We all believed the gospel, thought it was marvelous and true. I've often said I would trust my children at Harvard more than at BYU because there are so many smart people there who are really devoted to the church. So uh, it was a, a wonderful atmosphere in which to sort of grow up Mormon. Would we recognize any of the names of the people you used to have these little study groups with? Well, you might remember Chase Peterson. He became uh, president of the University of Utah. Absolutely. Carlford Broderick, who was a very um, powerful uh, applied psychologist, lived in California, very eminent scholar. Um, Jim Sandmeyer, who uh, about 15 years later came out and became a very prominent um, gay minister in San Francisco. Probably wouldn't know him, but he had a lot of notoriety at this time. Then my own roommate, his name was Joe Hubbard, became a neurosurgeon in California. Wouldn't know him. Huh. But it was a... Oh, go ahead. It was just a lively group. We had a lot of fun together. I read in an essay you wrote about your your faith that you did you did in fact have a crisis of faith uh, during your pre-mission time at Harvard. Would you mind talking about that? Because I know that a lot of uh, my listeners have either experienced that or are experiencing that now. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you never know how these things happen. Who knows why they believe what they do? It's it's a very mysterious thing. We all have reasons, but who knows what the real reasons are. Somehow I just began to lose my confidence in my second year. Maybe I was sinning. Maybe it was the really an oppressive atmosphere of skepticism at Harvard. Uh, this was the time of Bertrand Russell's logical positivism that wouldn't accept any kind of spiritual experiences having the least bearing on discovering the nature of reality. And then I remembered writing this paper comparing Freud and Nietzsche for a social science course I was taking. And Freud was, you know, Nietzsche was making the case that Christianity is is the religion of the weak. It's, It's a slavish religion because you abase yourself before God. It was just a series of those things floating around that sort of undermined my faith. I don't, I don't know how much my faith was really undermined. I, I did go on a mission, um, but I didn't. I couldn't say when I went on my mission that I knew the gospel was true. I was sort of in this limbo of, of uncertainty about everything. And I thought it was interesting. You wrote in your book that when you were struggling. For you, it was never a question of some historical fact with Joseph Smith or some Mormon doctrine. It was either God or nothing. Yep, that was the issue. Because that's the issue at Harvard. No one was talking about history of the church there or 
uh, all that kind of stuff that uh, riles up young people at BYU. It really was the, the whole question of, of faith at all. So uh, I think that in a way I'm, I'm out of step with lots of young people in the church who worry about the mistakes church leaders make or they worry about the fact that uh, Joseph Smith worked with the seer stone. That, uh, that all seemed sort of details for me. The big issue was any divinity in the universe at all. And so how did you how did you become a believer again or, or refine your believingness? Well, uh, I probably never recovered at all. Uh, I'm not someone who has a simple faith that just everything is absolutely true beyond any doubt. Uh, I uh, during the mission, you know, I worked like crazy. If you read that little essay of mine, you know that I worked like crazy to figure out whether or not I could believe the Book of Mormon. And finally, after sort of weighing everything that I had at hand, which was limited, um, I just had this affirmation and it wasn't a set of it wasn't a proof it wasn't a set of of uh, historical proofs it was just an affirmation that yes this is right I didn't even say this is true I said this is right I have no idea why that was but hmm. uh, that's the way it came out and then over the years I always could hear these questions as I say in that essay I, I'm a, a person who lives in this divided world. I'm very conscious of all the arguments against God and religion, and to a certain extent against the Church. Uh, but, uh, so I, I always am hearing those questions and engage constantly in these internal debates where I try to make a point against an imaginary contestant of some kind. Uh, but what really comes around to me is a very simple thing. The big word for me is goodness. I, above all things, want to go where things are good. And if I turn away from what I know is good because there's some philosopher who tells me this can't be or some little fact in the history of the church that is disruptive, that's, that's not enough to throw me out of the saddle. I, I want to go where I find goodness, where I become the kind of person I want to be, where I have brothers and sisters that I love and admire and work with, and where I live in a universe where I feel an incentive to improve and, and grow better all the time. And um, I, I just get that over and over in the church. I can't, I can't possibly turn away. It's more like the planting a seed image of the testimony in the element 32 the seed is good I can't deny that so I stick with it now I, I just have to ask you a bit about that because that, that's I like to characterize my faith in a similar way and I know that there's a lot of people out there who would want to be able to say that good is the criteria is enough <coughs> I know that there are a lot of anti-Mormons who are angry at the church who basically say there is no good in the church and the leaders are all dumb and the history is all fraudulent. I think that's hogwash. But, I, but there are, there's also another strain of people who say 
the church doesn't allow goodness to be the the measure necessarily. The measure is absolute truth relative to other religions, faiths, texts, prophets, etc. In other words, to to, ha- to to sort of throw your cards in with the Mormon church, there's a perception that you have to then say that all other churches are false, all other churches are an abomination, all other scriptural texts are, are inadequate, um, and this small population of less than one half than one percent of the world's population is God's one and only true chosen people. They, there's sort of a pressure to say it's got to be all that or nothing. Well, how, how do you help someone see that maybe there is a middle way? Yeah. Well, I, I don't hear much of that in the church anymore. I don't hear the word abomination. It may be just the places I, I happen to live, the people I know. Uh, I think as a church we're sort of lightening up on that. I don't hear that as much in general conference. There is a kind of a, a bogeyman view of the church that haunts people, where it really is a fanatical organization. And we think that that is the church as it's in its essence, but I don't think so. I think the church is much more complicated. Some people feel that way. But I would say this. There is a paradox here. To be zealous and striving and eager about anything that you're involved in, you have to believe in it. You have to believe it really is good, that people will benefit from it. And that's true for whether you're trying to teach people to drink clean water in Africa or trying to teach Harlem kids they got to do their schoolwork and get an education or whatever. You have to really believe it's going to make a difference. And for Mormonism to be an energetic and effective organization, it has to have that kind of zeal that does come out with languages like the only true church or this is God's way and so on. But there are also scriptures in Mormonism, which, as you well know, are prominent and easily found, that says (coughs) the Spirit of Christ is given to every person that God reveals to every person in their language what is good for them, what is truth for them. As if, you know, the Heavenly Father is watching over His children in every little corner of the earth, testifying to them as was good, leading them along, sending them prophets of a kind. So I think we just have to live with that fact that we're both universalistic, allowing God's Spirit to reign over the whole earth and bless all people everywhere and particularistic that ours is the, the true and good way and if you're uncomfortable with that you're going to be uncomfortable in Mormonism because that's just the way we think we've got both poles in our minds at once so you're acknowledging that that's paradoxical it is paradoxical right but do you, do you find some beauty in that or just it's re- it's just how things are you know, well, help, I find, help people come to to a place, if you can, where they can say, okay, I can live with that. I think I find beauty in that. I think any, any scheme of life that is not paradoxical cannot do justice to life. Life is paradoxical. And if you think it's going to be a simple, clear plan that you can impose on the world, and that is it, you're doomed to disappointment. 
paradoxes are everywhere. Carol Givens is coming out with a new book on the cultural history of Mormonism this year in which he describes Mormon theology in terms of a set of five paradoxes. And I think that's a very helpful way of it's not a set of principles, but a body of a group of tensions that we struggle with all the time. Hmm. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I thank, thank, thank you for sharing that. Well, let me ask you. Um, so, how did you be, become a historian? You know, I can hardly give an answer to that question. I started Harvard planning to do science. I started in physics, and then I migrated to math. By my second year, I was doing history and science. <laughs> but meanwhile, I was taking some really terrific courses that made me realize that you can think about history. It's not just a matter of remembering everything that happened, but you can conceptualize it. So by the time I got back from my mission after my I completed two years before I went. Uh, I decided I would do history. And you know, it was a huge decision, but I don't even remember wrestling over it. I just sort of backed into it. And it was strange, because the worst grades I got in college were in my American history course. Mm. <laughs> but I, I went into it anyway. I, it was just kind of um, blind luck because it turned out to be very useful for me. My own feeling is that for anyone making decisions, the best evidence that it's right is that it is self-justifying. That is, in the process of doing history, I found it enjoyable. It wasn't reading history. I never have been a very great reader of history books. But in doing history, thinking about things, putting that evidence together. So I really enjoyed that. So it just kept uh, reinforcing itself. And I went immediately on to graduate school got my PhD. And where where did you go to get your PhD? I stayed at Harvard, finished up there. And you chose colonial American history, is that right? Yeah, at that point my religion came back into the picture. I had a dickens of a time not just believing that I was doing right myself and doing history, but justifying it to others. Our, our ward in Cambridge was filled with all these Latter-day Saint business school types. And, you know, they knew what they were there for. They were, everything was practical about their degree. What in the world was history for? And so I got an idea that maybe what I would do, spend the early part of my life working on sort of the cultural background of the Restoration, starting, you know, in the 18th century, working my way up into the 19th. And then sometime later in life, do something on it on Joseph Smith. I had no idea what. So that's what I did. I got very, very interested in early American history. Wrote uh, three books on various aspects of it. And then finally, late in life, uh, decided now was the time to do Joseph Smith. So um, so you, you kind of mapped out conceptually the fact that you were going to pursue colonial American history so that you could have a firm understanding of the cultural and historical background that led to the formation of the church. Yeah. And, and then you would follow it through. Well, yeah. Mapping is maybe too strong, uh, too strong a, a term. It was a thought at one moment. And, you know, I would go five years at a time and never 
think of that thought. And in 1992, I thought, well, maybe now's the time to do Joseph Smith. I, had a, I just finished a book, and it was ready for a new book. But I decided, no, I'm more interested in early American farmers. So I actually steered away from the Joseph Smith book, thinking that Donna Hill was plenty good for the purposes, until um, Ron Esplin at the Smith Institute said we really needed one, and that sort of pushed me back towards uh, Joseph Smith. So it's not something that governs my life. I was truly interested in these other books. I loved them. I thought I was finding stuff that was useful and true, and that they had a kind of religious inner core to them. And I didn't feel any great need to go back to Joseph Smith until Ron Esplin came along. What year was that? I can't remember exactly, but I think it was 1994 that he came to me. And then I started work in earnest in 1997. Okay. Let's jump back for a bit, if you don't mind. Do you, I'd like to talk a bit about um, a couple of the books that came out and then sort of the era of scholarship in the 1970s. But let me start... When when Fawn Brody, it's it sounds like she wrote um, no no man knows my history. Right around the time you were you were in your PhD or graduating um, with your PhD, is that right? She published it in 1945. I started college in 1949. Okay, but she was certainly a presence in my mind. I was very much aware of the book. I read it in great detail as an undergraduate. Marked up everything I thought was in error in the book filled with red marks my copy so yeah she's always been a presence did you read her book pre-mission then uh that I could not tell you but I it, it didn't have any effect on my testimony as, as I recall and now is that because you just uh, how, how is that how is that possible like uh, well, what I mean, what I mean is, is it because you just discredited her as sort of anti-Mormon, and so you could just throw away the things she was writing, or were you just so familiar with all the history that she was able to pull together that it was no news? You just saw it as sort of biased spin. How did you emerge from the Fawn Brody experience unscathed? Well, uh, I think. Uh, Fawn Brody's great virtue is she is a, a colorful writer, but that uh, undermines her her authenticity as a historian. You have the feeling she'll do a lot of things for effect, and so I'd go through and question the facts that underlay some wild assertion, or I had a little code of letters that would indicate the nature of my critique so that you know if it, see I wasn't like you I didn't have this I never had this idealized picture of Joseph and then she's just a smack in the face uh, I, I knew that Joseph Smith was a, a contentious figure from the word go and this is just one more example of him being contentious hmm okay so, can you, would you mind, did you, did you know Leonard Arrington, Lowell Benyon, and T. Edgar Lyon? And can you talk a little bit about, one, 
what you felt or experienced during what many have called the Camelot years of church history, and two, how you got hooked up to help Leonard Arrington with the sesquicentennial series that he was hoping to write. Uh-huh. And then three and four, how you felt when that got canceled and how you felt about the way that that era sort of concluded. Uh, well, uh, I didn't know T. Edgar Lyon very well. I knew his son very well. He was a bishop in the same building where I was. We both had a young singles ward in Cambridge. Uh, I knew Lowell Benyon only late in life. I, you know, I didn't come up to that University of Utah pattern. But Leonard I knew uh, pretty well. When I, my first job was at BYU, and when I arrived, somehow he had gotten wind of it. <coughs> knew I was a PhD in history from Harvard. And wrote me a personal letter, kind of welcoming me to the state in the historical profession. And I realized this is a guy who takes responsibility for the whole direction of Mormon historiography. And that really was his style. He was sort of the, the grandfather and dean of the whole operation, not just at USU, not just at the church, but but everywhere. And then I, I worked with him quite <coughs> closely thereafter when my wife got started working on um, with the Boston women in the the pink issue of Dialogue and Founding Exponent 2. He got wind of it and sent um, those women a small grant, you know, a thousand bucks or so, to help put out Mormon sisters. And it was just a gesture, but it was a gesture those housewives needed. They didn't know if they could do it. They were just amateurs. Of course, among them was Laurel Ulrich, um, a very skilled amateur, but they were not historians. And he knew that a little something would sort of confirm their their hopes for this book. So I, I just felt like he was an encompassing figure of you know, great personal magnitude. I, I really loved him. I would say he was one of the men I really loved during my life. And And so... What what year was it that he gave this grant to to your wife and the other women who were writing for dialogue? Uh, you've got me, but it'd be in the seventies. Somewhere in the seventies. So he was a church employee. By that time, he was at the church office building. And so here was uh, the head of the church history department providing a grant for an upcoming dialogue um, edition. Is that right? Well, it was really it's really to produce this set of essays that became Mormon Sisters, which is a a book of essays on 19th century Mormon women, okay. still, still in print. And then about that time, he asked me to write the first volume of the 16, projected 16-volume History of the Church. The interesting thing was, years ago, before that time, I'd write, written him a letter telling him I thought, now is the time to repeat B.H. Roberts' work in 1930, of the Centennial History of the Church. He took up on that idea and, and really ran with it, asked me to do the, the first volume, which uh, I was uh, quite willing to do. Uh, he asked, actually approached me about coming west, and my own my scholarship uh, on the American Revolution at that time was 
bogged down, and I very seriously considered for a time moving west. Figure I just couldn't get out of the conundrums that were paralyzing me in my other work. But I did. But I did write that history. And the interesting thing is, uh, the first volume, which was Milt Backman's *The Heavens Resound*, had gone through the committee. It's been read by everybody who had to read it, and they were rolling along. Then came along my volume, *The Beginnings of Mormonism*, and after it was cleared by Leonard and all of his group, then it went up to some unknown group of general authorities to read. Never got a word back concerning it. But one day, Leonard and I were, I happened to be in Salt Lake, and we were called in. I think this guy's name was Lowell Durham. I think he was the head of the Deseret book then. And the news was delivered that they were canceling the series. They'd given big advances to all the authors. So they were into it financially in a big way, but they canceled the series. And Leonard was dumbfounded and horrified. And it was really a terrible blow to him. I actually didn't mind it because I felt this series was not going to work. The problem is that it comes out as an official church history. Then they have to read everything. They have to take responsibility for everything that's written. And they would be constantly trying to censor what I'd said. They couldn't just let me write whatever I wanted, because who knows what I or someone else would write. So I felt like, all things considered, it was better for the authors to work independently. But Leonard didn't see it that way. He was uh, really set back a long way. And just a, a, a lot of our listeners will have no idea what we're talking about. So basically, the idea was 150 years of church history, do a book for every 10 years or so, and have sort of the scholar for that time period write that part of the book. Is that right? Well, close to that. It wasn't every decade. It was, uh, you know, there would be a, a book on the Western migration. There'd be a book on the church in Europe and a book on the church in the South Pacific and a book on New York and one on Kirtland and one on Missouri and one on Nauvoo. So it, um, it just divvied it up in a fairly conventional way, the way we think of church history. Tom Alexander's uh, Mormonism and Transition was one of the books. And, uh, 18. 1890 to 1920. And I know one of my professors at BYU, Lamont had been asked to do the Latin America book, right? Yeah. So you, so what you're sort of saying is that the church shouldn't get in the history business. That that's well, I, yeah, I think they get into all sorts of uh, of conflicts because um, they're endorsing it. I, I think they themselves. I'm basing this on conversations with individual general authorities, wish there was some middle sphere where church historians could write their work, take chances, explore this or that, and the church wouldn't be held responsible for it. But it's very hard to get that distance. If you're a Deseret book, there are just going to be loads of Mormons saying, well, if it's a Deseret book, it must be the church's view. Even BYU has a, a certain uh, 
you know, it's, it has a certain imprimatur to it. So um, it's a bit of a problem for the church. Because, as I understand it, they they started by saying we're getting our clock we're getting our clock cleaned by secular historians. We have to get in the game here, and right. that's that was the intellectual impetus to calling Leonard Arrington to be church historian, right? That's right. That's but, right. But you're saying, and, and it sounds like the lesson learned from that whole era was that the church needs to stay out of the history business and leave it to the historians. Yeah, I I, I think. You could say that as a lesson learned. Uh, whether it can be learned permanently is another question. <laughs> because uh, there's always a great desire to create a history that will really speak for the Church, because we value our history. It's, it's part of our doctrine, almost. So the, trouble, the problem is, can you write a history that will have any validity to a general audience that also tells the church story straight. So we're trying again with Mountain Meadows. We're trying it again with the Joseph Smith Papers. And so it's a, there's a bit of a pendulum going on. Yeah, I think that's right. That you go to a certain point, then you realize we've gone too far, and it swings back. And there we go. So how did you feel about the way Leonard Arrington's time concluded? And uh, you know, I've read Adventures of a Church Historian, and it. You know, it paints this picture, this really sad picture at the end, that even though he was called as church historian in General Conference, when they released him, they released him quietly, and that now somewhere in church headquarters there's a mural of every church historian, but his mural isn't there. And it just gives you the sense that here was this wonderful man that I love through text, you love through personal experience, that just wasn't treated in a in a loving way in the way that things were ended. I, I know that that's a, a sim- oversimplified view. And when I talked to Hugh Midgley, he basically claims that Levina Fielding Anderson wrote Leonard Arrington's autobiography and that you know that wasn't what Leonard Arrington would have wanted us to believe at all. Can you help fill in the pieces there for someone like me who's feeling sad for the way that that, that ended? I don't think I can fill in any pieces. I wasn't close enough to know what was going on. My view is comes almost directly out of uh, Leonard's autobiographical writings. I know it was a, a terrible disappointment to him, and uh, I suppose it could have been handled more gracefully, uh, and I feel very sad that he was wounded by the whole experience. But in the long run, I don't think it's going to detract from his, his actual achievement because a lot of fabulous work came out of that period and out of his own mind. So I see that as kind of receding as a significant event. So some some would look at the, the anti-Mormonism, especially on the Internet that exists today, and say that they have Leonard Arrington to thank for it because he was given access to church archives. All these cans of worms got opened up. And that has become the fodder for, you know, Michael Quinn came out of that and and a lot of the a lot of the writings that you know, all the probably Grant Palmer's entire book came a big chunk of that out of what was unleashed during that ten years. What what if someone were to say that that whole era was just one big mistake, that it the church will be forever damaged by all the 
stuff that came out uh, of that period. I, I'm sorry if it sounds dramatic, but I sometimes wonder that. In other words, I how, think, go ahead. Sorry. I think that uh, until you get down to the bedrock of the source material and what's there, you never are safe. You've got to base everything you write on what's there in the sources. And insofar as we had created a picture of Joseph Smith that wasn't based on the sources, didn't take all those things into effect, uh, we were in a very precarious position. I mean, you yourself have gone through this disillusionment that comes when suddenly it's it's all there. So, it, yeah, it's painful, and there are people who think we're giving comfort to the enemy by turning on all this stuff, but uh, we'll never be secure until we can go out and talk about the sources and what's really in the historical record alongside all the critics of the church. Okay. And I think I think your book, is, a, is a, Rust Unrolling, is a demonstration of that belief that ultimately truth will prevail um, and goodness will prevail. And, and while we need to be sensitive, we, we don't have to fear the facts. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So, real quick, b- before we jump into Rough Stone Rolling, I just have one more series of questions. You, um, you know, Dialogue was started in the late 60s, and then Sunstone sometime in the mid-70s. And a, a lot of people who just aren't plugged into the whole deal would be shocked to know that you yourself have presented at Sunstone Symposiums. You've probably written articles for Sunstone and Dialogue. Uh, you know, and there was a time where you know, Sunstone and Dialogue probably didn't have the reputation that it has now, the negative reputation. And I would just love for you to talk about, you know, because there's a, there's your, your perspective is so important. Here's a guy who knows all the facts and he's willing to talk about them openly, but he's also a believer. There's no one who could claim that you don't know Nietzsche. You don't know Kant. You don't know Peepstone's. Um, and at the same time, there's no one that could argue that you're a believer. Well, role models like this seem to be in abundance in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even 80s. We had Lowell Bennion. We had T. Edgar Lyon. We had Eugene England. We had, you know, Leonard Arrington and, and all the others, Chase Peterson. And it was dialogue in Sunstone that seemed to be the fulcrums around which these personalities emerged. But now that Sunstone and Dialogue have have been given, been denounced and sort of given a bad reputation and Sunstone more than Dialogue. Where are these people today? They don't seem to exist. And so I'd love you just to talk about how you viewed Sunstone and Dialogue in the 70s and 80s. I, I don't want you to condemn Sunstone or Dialogue. I'm not asking you to sort of publicly challenge them. But any thoughts you could share on whether you think they did have a positive role, whether you think they may have served their purpose or even gone astray help us work through whether we should just see that as a whole horrible thing the whole dialogue sounds something whether it has a purpose and today what we have that could be comparable for a new generation of thinkers and believers to coalesce around that's a compound question i got involved as uh, the book review editor i've known gene england for a number of years and he uh, asked me to start out. I thought it was kind of fun. And This is for dialogue. You know, this is for dialogue, right? For, our for dialogue, okay. yeah. Okay. And 
I didn't see danger in it because, you know, I came out of this Harvard environment where you just chatted up everything. There was, you didn't worry about dangerous ideas that might poison you. So, but I was warned uh, quite vigorously by Robert Thomas, with whom I was working the honors program at that time, to steer clear and be, it would be uh, too much, and that my name would be um, stained by this association. The church leaders would never uh, trust me again, and all this and that. But I have a kind of a, a blithe confidence that if you try to do what's right and just go into every situation um, with an open mind that you uh, come out all right. And so, you know, I was willing uh, to give it a try. And I like the idea that that these journals have, have sparked a lot of thinking. It's like forums. I really like the fact that a lot of people are putting their minds to work on gospel subjects because they're so eager to the church in farms. And dialogue brings forth a, a similar kind of uh, intellectual energy. So I feel pretty good about that. Um, I, I am enough of an open-minded person to recognize I could be wrong. And that my confidence that we can talk about anything and talk about it openly may be naive and that there are dangers down the road that uh, I can't foresee. So when the church comes out and says, don't get involved in Sunstone, don't get in involved in dialogue, <coughs> I'm willing to say, all right, you may be right, and I go along with it. Though I have been uh, involved in modest ways uh, here and there. So uh, this is one where I'm willing to put the judgment uh, on the shelf and just let it go. Your larger question, though, is do we need those kind of journals to bring forth our best intellectuals? And uh, I, I just think you can't repress Mormon intellectuality. There is so much energy that's sort of captured in our Mormon faith that anyone who has intellectual inclinations at all is just going to think about things and talk about them. I think the blogs are an example of of uh, how their people spend hours each day just chattering about Mormon subjects. And though I think a lot of that's a waste of time, uh, I, I think there are some very serious Mormon intellectuals coming along at Notre Dame, at Harvard, at Duke. We're having a conference for graduate students in religious studies at Yale next month. <clears throat> a lot of very thinky, good people there who are trying to figure out what their Mormonism means in these days. So maybe we don't have uh, a roster of giants that we can turn to, but I'm never one with those who think... Uh, We've lost the great generation that's now behind us, and we're, we have to content ourselves with the pygmies. There's some very powerful people coming up, and uh, I'd like to find ways to get them together and get them thinking. This summer seminar that Carol Simmons, Givens, and I run has brought together over 50 
young man, and they say it's really potent people, very active, very effective. So, <laughs> I hope we can keep assembling them one way or another. So, are these are these PhDs then that you're bringing together? They're usually uh, graduate students, even some advanced undergraduates. We find some. Probably the smartest guy in the church is a guy named Jared Hickman, who came as an undergraduate from Bowdoin's undergraduate honors essay, which just knocked your socks off. It could be it could be a book. Probably will be a book. He's at Harvard now, doing marvelous work. What's the name again? Jared Hickman. Jared Hickman. And he's going to be a, he's going to be historian. He's in literature. Okay. But you you know people who do literature and also do a kind of history too. Okay. So, so there. Are a lot of these powerful people around. So, so new societies like Sunstone will emerge. You're you're saying, and they'll probably go through a similar lifestyle. Well, they'll get their energy. They'll be formed. Lots of great discussions will happen. And isn't there always the risk that that they'll stray and maybe be denounced again? And they'll be just like you talked about the church's tendency with history, the church's tendency with symposia to sort of be hot and cold to it. Yeah. Well, maybe. But uh, with the people I know, I don't think so. I I will confess a little impatience with Sunstone. I read through the list of sessions that they're supposing, and I think, uh, it just tires me out. All these people working out their problems with the church and, you know, chewing away at some issue that troubles them. I I'm more of a positive person. I, I want to I want us to start exploring the, the potentials of Mormonism. What are its depths and its heights and where can it go? How can it help us to understand the world better? We should have an art critique that comes out of our Mormonism. <coughs> That's what this <clears throat> new generation is going. They're not sort of fighting through their doubts. They're sort of exploring, trying to find out what its the potentials are. So uh, they can all go sour in time, and I guess there are people who worry about it, but uh, not me. I I like to let these guys roll. And if they get off into some heresies, uh, that's not so bad. This program has been a production of Mormon Stories Podcast. To comment on this episode or to peruse the archives of past episodes, please visit us online at mormonstories.org. Also, please consider supporting Mormon Stories Podcast by making a contribution today or by voting for this episode at dig.com and sustained.org. Thanks again for listening.